0: I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation on addressing chronic pain. I am your host, Dr. Donnelly Snipes. Now, you might wonder, you know, why do we do so many presentations on pain? Well, you're going to find out a little bit more about why we do that today um, as we go through the first couple of slides, Uh, but it is important to recognize the impact of pain on mental health and the impact of mental health or mental illness on pain so today we're going to learn about the prevalence of chronic pain identify the biopsychosocial impact of pain so we're going to go back to broth and brenner's model we'll explore some causes of pain obviously in one hour we can't possibly cover them all and identify some practical steps based on you know current best practices to I, to address pain in, in our client. About 40% of people have chronic pain issues. Now that is not 40% of people seeking mental health treatment. That's 40% of the general population, four out of 10. You know, when you're at the grocery store, standing in line, there's 10 people in line Four of those people probably experience chronic pain, okay? Kind of let that sink in for a second. Pain is a big issue. Pain is associated with autoimmune issues, but pain is also associated with other things. Pharmacological pain-centric treatment is only capable of controlling pain in 30 to 50% of cases. Now, what I mean by pain-centric is basically your NSAIDs, your opioids, you know, those sorts of things only control chronic pain in 30 to 50% of the cases. Now, another interesting little tidbit here, what does that remind you of? Pharmacological approaches to treating depression and anxiety only work in about 30 to 50%, well, not even, 30 to 40% of the cases. So pharmacological interventions are great for a third of the population. And, you know, obviously the 30% uh, of the population for whom uh, psychotropics work may not be the same 30% of the population for whom pain medications work. But it is interesting, and you'll notice a little bit as we talk, I didn't go into ketamine in this presentation, but it is interesting to notice the significant overlap in what's going on. Inflammatory cytokines, we keep hearing about those things lately. Those are the little buggers that circulate in our system that cause inflammation. Inflammatory cytokines impact the synthesis, release, and uptake of serotonin, dopamine, and glutamate, as well as, well, GABA is made from glutamate, so... If glutamate is wonky, then GABA is probably going to be wonky, but I'll get to that. Now, remember that when we have a, a, an imbalance of our neurotransmitters, whatever neurotransmitter it is, it can be because our body is not releasing enough, because our body is not making enough, or b- because our body soaks it up too quickly and doesn't leave it in the synapses for long enough. So there are three different reasons that we may not have enough or or we may have too much of a particular neurotransmitter. And each medication, psychotropic medication out there, works differently. Some increase the release, some increase the duration, like your SSRIs, your selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, keep the serotonin in the synapse for a longer period of time so it can, you know, do more activity if you will. Um, but it is important to recognize when we're working with patients who have chronic pain, that means that they do have increased levels of inflammatory cytokines. Those cytokines are going to contribute to their mood issue. There's just It's going to contribute to their neurochemical imbalances. It is what it is. Serotonin and SSRIs. So if they don't have enough serotonin when they take SSRIs and it increase that serotonin level, they found that, uh, serotonin can block these pro- pro-inflammatory cytokines. So hallelujah. If you have somebody who has low serotonin, um, they may have symptoms of major depressive disorder as serotonin levels increase, you know, we've talked about this before, Um uh, Pain levels tend to decrease. As serotonin decreases, pain levels increase. So we are aware of that. Remember, if you go back to the uh, HPA axis, when people are under threat, when that HPA axis, that threat response system is activated, it releases cortisol, norepinephrine, glutamate, all your excitatory neurotransmitters, the neurotransmitter that it seems to suppress are the... uh, serotonin receptors responsible for regulating emotion and helping people feel calmer. So if our HPA axis is overly activated because we are dealing with trauma, because we're anxious, because, you know, we've just got stress all the time, then guess what? Our serotonin levels are probably going to be low. Maybe not so low as to qualify for major depressive disorder, but they're going to be low. Low serotonin. Increased pain. Chronic inflammation leads to persistent alterations in dopamine function, reflected by anhedonia, fatigue, and psychomotor slowing. Think about when people start taking antipsychotics, atypical antipsychotics. What do those medications do? Lower dopamine. When dopamine is too low, we don't have energy. We have difficulty concentrating. We are apathetic. Dopamine is our, I want to do that again, neurochemical. You know, that, that's our chemical that helps us persevere. It motivates us to keep going and to do it again. And when it's low, we don't feel that way. When we're looking at a client who has pain, their dopamine levels are going to be low. Since their dopamine levels are low, they're probably going to have a lot of those symptoms of depression. And GABA, one of my favorite. GABA is our main calming chemical. It's our body's natural volume, if you will. And GABA decreases the proliferation and inhibits secretion of cytokines, these pro-inflammatory cytokines. So GABA comes in and says, no, we don't need to, the inflammation is not necessary right now. When there's not enough GABA, guess what? Those little inflammatory cytokines go bonkers. You know, they are relatively unrestrained. So there is a lot of interaction between not only our immune system and inflammation, but also our neurotransmitters and inflammation and inflammation and our mood because all of these neurochemicals are important for us to have a happy healthy mood and all of these neurochemicals are important to control inflammation the biopsychosocial impact of pain chronic pain has complex bidirectional causal effect relationships with biological psychological and social factors when the biological aspects are impaired or problematic it impacts our mental health and it impacts our generally our relationships when the psychological aspects are you know out of out of kilter if we have high ang- high health anxiety for example that is going to increase that hpa axis increase inflammation and make the pain worse as well as probably also, contribute to more difficulty in our relationships. And finally, when our relationships are not so hot, when we don't have support, when we feel isolated, when we feel rejected, or when we've just flat withdrawn from people because we feel guilty or whatever, that tends to have negative impacts on our mental health, which has reciprocal negative effects on our biology. The awesome thing it works in the other direction too. When we get any of these factors better in order, guess what? You start feeling better and neurotransmitters start getting um, more balanced again. So the biological impacts, the HPA axis, like I already talked about, when we are in pain, our body says, hey, that's a threat. We're not supposed to feel pain. So it activates that HPA axis. Our fight or flight system, our threat response system, increases cortisol, which is designed to help us fight or flee. But if we can't escape from it, then it's just going to be this constant cycle, kind of like sitting in the driveway with the car in park and pressing the gas. Doesn't get you anywhere, you know, causes the engine to overheat, yada, yada. The HPA axis, when it's activated, Impairs sleep. When we're in pain, we typically don't sleep as well. Just because of the pain, not even because the HPA axis is activated. So we got a double whammy there. The pain and the increases in adrenaline and norepinephrine and cortisol impair our sleep. HPA axis itself increases inflammation. Lack of sleep makes the HPA axis more active, which increases inflammation. Serotonin and gonadal hormones are out of whack. When I say gonadal hormones, what I'm talking about mainly is estrogen and testosterone. Those are out of whack. Those are all important. Um, estrogen and testosterone are very important for uh, the availability of serotonin. Believe it or not, you know your gonadal hormones, your thyroid hormones, and your neurotransmitters all affect one another when any of those are out of out of balance it's going to potentially cause you know those other types of hormones to be out of balance as well so we really want to help people heal their hpa acts i can't stress it enough how important it is to help people figure out how to get as best a quality sleep as they can keep their nutrition as healthy as possible Engage in health-positive behaviors, and we're going to talk about a lot of these, as well as manage their stress and manage their cognitions so they're not constantly telling themselves that there's a threat out there and keeping that HPA axis activated. Now, I want you to think about what's going on in the world right now, you know, and people may be watching this two years from now, and hopefully it'll be different, but no matter what time period you pick, somewhere in the world, there is chaos. And right now, unfortunately, it happens to be all over the world and definitely in our little corner of the world. Most people right now, their HPA axis is just off the charts. And unfortunately, it's off the charts 24-7. We see people consuming more caffeine, consuming more alcohol. Both of those are inflammatory. We see people not getting adequate sleep. Um, And I'll admit, I'm in that in that group as well sometimes where you know it doesn't seem like I can sleep like I used to I wake up at 2:30 in the morning and normally I get up at 4 so 2:30 is not horrible but I wake up at 2.30 in the morning and I can't get back to sleep. I start stressing about things. And that's that HPA axis kind of overactive saying, not time to relax. When we are in pain, there's often reduced activity, which leads to kind of seizing or stiffening of our joints. It also oftentimes causes imbalances in in our muscles if we are relaxed and watching TV and we're hunched over. Guess what? That means these muscles right here are getting shorter, tighter, less stretched out. And these muscles here are getting more stretched out. So there's a muscular imbalance and your spine doesn't like that. And weight gain. Weight gain in and of itself promotes inflammation. And there are a lot of studies about that. We'll talk about it later. Uh, But pain and reduced activity Often also lead to weight gain because people eat the same, even though they're not burning as many calories. Psychologically, we want to look at grief people experience over frustration that they can't do things that they used to do, over ha- getting a diagnosis of something that is pers- particularly persistent. Um uh, and then along with grief, remember denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. So you've got depression and anger to deal with in that, in that grief spectrum. We need to help people acknowledge... The things that they're grieving, and it's not just you know the loss of a limb or or something. We want to help people explore some of the less tangible things that they're grieving, like their dreams and some of their favorite hobbies. Maybe they used to love to run and they've got spine problems now and they can't run anymore. There's a grief part associated with that. There's also grief associated with that, especially with some of these degenerative issues that cause pain, where people are recognizing their own mortality. They're recognizing that they can't do now what they did when they were 20, and all of a sudden they're realizing they're not 20 anymore, and that existential uh, grief starts coming to the surface. We do want to probe with people, what things that they may be grieving, what they may be stressing about, angry about, uh, and help them work through those. Because as long as they're dysphoric about their condition, you know, and and depressed, anger, grieving, whatever word they want to use, that HPA axis is going to be more activated. They're going to have more inflammation. We need to help them identify as many issues as we can to deal with and move towards acceptance. Guilt comes in a lot of different flavors, but people often, when they have pain, they may feel guilty that they can't do the things they used to do. Uh, Maybe they, you know, their back hurts too much. I remember, I know there's one commercial I used to see, and it used to break my heart. um, This Gentleman uh, had chronic pain, and he couldn't walk his dog anymore. And the dog would bring the leash, and he's like, "No, I can't do that right now. I'm in pain." And the doggy would just lay down on the floor, and I'm. Just- Poor doggy, But I also feel bad for the guy because I knew he probably felt guilty about not taking, being able to take Fido for a walk. But we can feel guilty. Maybe we can't do things around the house as much as we to anymore. And you know, I know when my back hurts, I periodically will do things to my back. And simple things like picking up a heavy laundry basket and carrying it upstairs. Is, is agonizing for me, and I feel guilty asking anybody else to do it. And, and that's in, in my situation. You know, cognitively that doesn't make any sense, but it's how I feel. We we do want to explore people's issues of guilt and have them write a guilt bill of rights for themselves. Remind them, reminding themselves or encouraging themselves to write down each thing that they feel guilty for and identify. Whether that is something that is, um, important for them to feel guilty for, you know, I'm avoiding using the word should there. Because a lot of times we feel guilty for stuff, for things that, you know, nobody else cares about. You know, my son does not care if he has to carry his own laundry basket upstairs. You know, if I feel guilty for it, that's just me using a lot of energy, um, fretting about something that's, that's really no big deal. Guilt, grief, anxiety. It's another one of those that really comes in a lot of different flavors, but people can feel anxious that their loved ones are going to reject them because they can't do the things they used to do. Maybe you used to go play tennis with your significant other all the time and you've developed tennis elbow, so you can't do that anymore or you know whatever. So some people may feel anxious about rejection. Some people may feel anxious if they've got really bad pain. They may worry that they're going to get laid off or fired. So they may have financial concerns that they're anxious about. Some people may feel anxious about taking medications that the doctor prescribes them because they're afraid of getting addicted. And, you know, that is a reasonable concern. And, but we do want to talk with them and encourage them to communicate with their doctor about their concerns so they can manage their pain in a way that is most appropriate for them. And then we've got anxiety um, about our health. When somebody starts having pain, for example, let's take the, the back example. If they've got degenerative disc dis- and they start developing more pain, they may get very anxious and worry that it is going it is progressing a lot faster and they're gonna be in a wheelchair and they're not gonna be able to walk upstairs and da da. da, da. They can catastrophize really quickly um, when they start feeling more pain. And it's important for us to help them evaluate what's going on. All right. Um you, you started having more pain in your back yesterday. Did you do something different the day before that or the day before that or maybe even the day before that? Sometimes it takes three days to really set in. A lot of times people will figure out that they did or they'll realize that, you know what, maybe I slept wrong and they get up the next day and it's fine. We don't want to discourage them from reaching out to their physician, you know, if the pain is... Uh, Particularly worrisome, but we do want to also encourage them to look at the big picture, not just assume that their condition is spiraling out of control if they happen to have more pain on one day. Along with that, and I'm jumping ahead to interventions, but whatever, we want to help them increase their health literacy regarding their pain, regarding their condition. What is the expected t- trajectory? for degenerative disc disease or whatever it is that they have? What are some signs to be concerned about? What are some things they need to be on the lookout for that they would indicate that they need to call their doctor immediately? What are some things that they can do, non-pharmacological interventions that they can do in order to reduce their pain when they're having a particularly bad pain day. You know, think migraines. That is another type of pain. It's not musculoskeletal. So, you know, some of the things that we're talking about here wouldn't work for a migraine. But we do want to help people identify what they can do. And jealousy and resentment, that's kind of a form of anger, but I'm putting it on its own little level. When people have chronic pain, sometimes they can get angry at other people for not having that pain or for not understanding their pain. Uh, And and we want to look at how jealousy and resentment may be impacting their relationships. Now, when you're living with somebody who has... You know, persistent grief, guilt, anxiety, impatience, irritability, jealousy, resentment. If it's persistent, it tends to cause problems in that, in those relationships, which leads to isolation, withdrawal, and rejection. And so we can see how these things interact with, with one another causes of pain well threat learning is one of them it's a major contributing factor in chronic pain and vice versa because cortisol has a significant effect on learning biasing biasing sorry towards threat information so when we have pain what do we notice we notice the pain we notice all the things that are going wrong you know when you wake up and you're in pain you start or you don't feel well you start noticing all All of the negative symptoms you're having, the fever, the chills, the cough, the this, the that, you're not noticing all the things that are going right. And when people are in chronic pain and they wake up, that cortisol level is high because their pain is high, which means that HPA axis is activated and they've got inflammatory cytokines just running rampant. Serotonin's low, dopamine's low. You know, it's not a good way to start the day. But what they notice because of that situation, they're also going to notice more broadly all of the negative stuff that's going on. They're going to notice all the threats, all the dangers. They're going to pick up on um, micro expressions that tend to be rejecting or um, unpleasant, which which further increases their their stress, their feelings of rejection, and, and their fight or flight Activation, their HPA axis activation. We do need to address threat learning and encourage people to recognize and and embrace those dialectics. Live in the end. Yes, today you are in a lot of pain. On a scale of one to 10, your pain is a nine today. And you know that you've identified you don't need to call the doctor, it's just today's a nine. Um, You can focus on that. And you can notice all the negatives all day long, but a lot of times when people are in pain, it's even more important those days for them to encourage themselves to notice the good things that are going on and to force themselves to say, yes, I have pain and I've got some great kids and I've got a job I love and you see where I'm going with this because it helps them um, not hone in on and go down that negative path. Stress increases pain and autoimmune sy- symptoms. As stress goes up, inflammation goes up. As inflammation goes up, autoimmune symptoms goes up. Vitamin mean, HPA axis activation leads to increased inflammatory cytokines and is, is associated with increases in anxiety and depression. Well, that makes sense. HPA axis activation increases inflammation, inflammation decreases, guess what? Serotonin, which helps regulate our anxiety, as well as GABA, which helps regulate our anxiety and increases norepinephrine and glutamate, which increase our anxiety. So yeah, it makes sense. People with chronic pain when they do hair tests tend to have just higher circulating cortisol levels all the time, which tells us that there's a pretty good chance that that HPA axis is constantly at least on low and instead of off when people are trying to sleep it is still bubbling back there kind of like leaving the uh, the burner on on low instead of turning it all the way off at night you know you're still using energy interestingly parental low care which was def- defined as emotional unresponsiveness parents who were just like do what I say you know I'm I don't care about your emotional issues. Just, you know, fall in line. And high overprotection. And that means parents who were what I classify as enmeshed. They were the ones that were telling Junior what to think, what to wear, what to eat, what they would do. They didn't want to hear it. They were looking for something, a little person that they could control. Those two factors, and if you click on the link, it'll take you actually to the instrument that they used in order to determine... Uh, the level of emotional responsiveness and enmeshment. It's a cool cool tool that's available. Um, anyhow, p- parental low care and high overprotection during childhood were found to contribute to the risk of future chronic pain. Well, let's think about this. You know, it makes sense. When kids are little, they don't have coping skills. Proper, secure attachment teaches children emotional regulation skills. If they don't learn those because the parent is not emotionally responsive and just tells them what to do all the time and they feel frustrated, they don't feel heard, and they don't know how to cope with their emotions, guess what? They're going to have increased inflammatory cytokines going through their system, as they get older and their problems get bigger, their inflammatory response is probably going to get bigger, which may contribute to more pain. So I thought that was a fascinating study. And obviously... um, You can click on these links and look at the study itself too. Musculoskeletal conditions like scoliosis or TMJ or neurological conditions like neuropathy, which we see in people with diabetes, for example, where their fingers and their toes just start burning like they're on fire. Or phantom pain, um, and this can occur, this occurs a lot of times when people have a limb amputated, but it also occurs a lot of times in women after a mastectomy. There is a phantom pain there that, you know, medicine, uh, opioids or non-steroidal anti-inflammatories ain't going to touch because there is no actual inflammation there. It's the nerve endings that have gone uh, a little bit haywire. Autoimmune issues we know can cause pain because they cause inflammation. Rapid cessation of opioid medications after tolerance is developed. Now, how long does it take to develop tolerance? And I asked, um, Dr. Doring, and, you know, he is a prof- uh, professor emeritus at the, um, college of, uh, pharmacology in, uh, at the University of Florida. Great man. Loved listening to him. He was one of my favorite professors. And, you know, I asked him, Dr. Doring, how long does it take for somebody to develop tolerance? And his response, it depends. It depends on the person. It depends on the dose and it depends on the duration. You know, if they're taking, you know, a full dose every night to help them sleep, but not throughout the day, it's going to take longer than if they're taking it a full dose every four hours, but it also depends on the medication. You know, Oxycontin is going to be different than fentanyl, for example. So we can't say that there's any particular duration. Some studies have indicated that within a week of consistent use of opioids, the body actually already has started to adjust. So it's important to titrate off of them. If you decrease or if you stop opioids, you know, abruptly, there are You know, if you've been taking it for a long time, you may have some withdrawal effects, flu-like symptoms and stuff. But for the average person um, who doesn't have significant tolerance, they're still going to have an increase in pain. When you take the opioids, your brain stops or significantly reduces the production of its own endogenous opioids. And it doesn't get the message right away when you miss a dose or even a day or two's worth of doses of your medications, it doesn't get the message right away that it's supposed to start producing painkillers again because you're not going to be taking them orally. So it does take a little bit of time. And you know, so titration is is certainly recommended. Cessation of adequate pain treatment as a result of COVID may also have unintended consequences in people with chronic pain, including increased pain because of... Um, reduced function, increased reliance on opioid medications, potentials of increased morbidity due to the systemic impact of the untreated disease burden. You know, obviously that came from a, a study, but basically what it's saying is since we had abruptly cut off some people's pain treatment. They may have started self-medicating, increasing the use of of opioids, becoming more reliant on the opioids. They may also have, you know, not been able to go to physical therapy or occupational therapy or the gym or wherever it was that they went and they did their activities, their their restorative activity. So there are a lot of things that Got pushed to the wayside because we were on uh, quarantine for a while. And what the article was alluding to was the fact that after a pandemic or a major crisis, like after Hurricane Katrina or Harvey, or you know something that disrupts a system for an extended period of time, there is probably going to be an increase in pain issues that we need to address. Else, we're going to see an increase in opioid misuse. So what do we do? Told you we would get here. The most recommended complementary medical treatments for chronic musculoskeletal pain. Now, obviously, that's not all pain, but a lot of people have musculoskeletal pain. And that can include, you know, tennis elbow, scoliosis, back problems, pulled muscles, whatever. Acupuncture. 69%. 69%. And therapeutic massage, 59%. I'm rounding, obviously. Um, so it's good to recognize that a lot of physicians actually do recognize the utility and, and the best practiceness of acupuncture and massage. And they don't automatically go to necessarily extended periods of some sort of pain medication. A lot of opi... Places you can't get opioids for more than like three days or something, but there are other medications that are used, buprenorphine, which, you know, is in that opioid class, is used for chronic pain management. Um, and there are a lot of others. Opioids, do just be aware that opioids contribute to hypogonadism. Opioids suppress your sex hormones. Remember what we said earlier? Estrogen and testosterone Increase the availability of serotonin. So when you're taking opioids, those are getting suppressed, which means serotonin um, is also not as available. And as serotonin goes down, pain goes up. Ice and heat, depending on which feels best for the person is usually what my doctor tells me. Sleep, so important. And when we are sleep deprived, our body perceives us as more vulnerable, if you will. So it ramps up that HPA axis, it increases cortisol, which increases norepinephrine and glutamate to help keep us awake. It's, you know, your body's trying to help you out. It's like, okay, well, we didn't get enough rest, so we need to artificially turn up the volume. People need adequate restorative sleep. When people sleep, it's also a time when their body can focus on resting and repairing. Exercise interestingly enough, results in what's called hyperalgesia, which means the body starts killing its own pain. You know, hyper means over and algesia means pain reduction or something like that. You know, the body is actually increasing its pain reduction capacities when we exercise. And exercise increases endogenous pain inhibition. Exercise increases the secretion of our endogenous opioids because, you know, when we work out, you know, especially if you're working out intensely, you're going to create some micro tears and stuff like that. That's how your muscles grow. And in order to do that, You know, your body wouldn't, you probably wouldn't keep doing it if you were always in a lot of pain. So when we do that, our body increases some of those endogenous opioids to say, you know what? Good for you. You were taking care of me. Let me see if I can, you know, make you feel a little bit better. Deep breathing, Qigong and Tai Chi. And I put all these together. They're not obviously the same, but as we breathe and we slow our breathing, deep breathing triggers what they call the rest and digest response, which is opposite of the HPA axis response or the fight or flight response. So increasing deep breathing, inhale for four to eight, depending on who you're working with, Um, hold for four to eight, and exhale for four to eight. The more deeply and slowly you can breathe, the more you'll be able to reduce your heart rate. When I was much younger, um, I used to be able to practice that and get my heart rate down somewhere between 38 and 41 um, on on a resting basis, which it was almost a game for me to see if I could do it. But we can sort of gamify it with our clients too. If they get a... Um, tracker, they can get a, one of those pulse ox monitors that you use at the doctor, or they can get a chest strap that monitors their heart rate. Either way, you're going to get something that's relatively close and, but they can see their heart rate reducing. They can see the relaxation response kicking in. When we relax, what goes up? Serotonin and GABA. And we know that serotonin and GABA are both instrumental in reducing our pain. Is it going to take care of everything? Oh, heck no. But it definitely helps if our body is, you know, working with us instead of against us. Uh, Qigong and Tai Chi both involve very slow, deliberate range of motion movements, which can help people regain some of their balance. It also increases oxygenation and helps keep um, fluidity in the joints, if you will. For patients who have, uh, stability issues or who are particularly frail or maybe just are really, the pain has them exhausted or they're going through cancer treatment, there are forms and, and, um, programs of Qigong and Tai Chi where the person stays seated. And in a lot of, um, Assisted living facilities, they will use the seated kind because a lot of their uh, residents are not able to stand for that long. And you can go on YouTube and find examples of these different interventions. Nutrition. Y'all know I love nutrition. Different microbial compositions in the gut. So we're talking about that gut microbiome again. Different microbes in the gut can influence behavior cognition, and inflammation. And that's not just in the gut, that's throughout the entire body. So we want to have that gut microbiome healthy. Um, The nervous system and inflammation, you know, maybe you get an injury and you've got inflammation or you're stressed out, which increases the the cytokines in your blood system. Well, guess what? The nervous system and inflammation influence the gut microbiota. Now we know this. You know, we may not realize we know this, but we know this. When you get stressed out, what happens to your to your gut? For a lot of us, we start either feeling constipated or having diarrhea. That's one of those indications that something has changed. But it is important to recognize that stress and inflammation do influence does influence our our gut microbiome and vice versa. Now, the good thing, dark chocolate, beans, nuts, seeds, and omega-3s are all super helpful at maintaining a healthy microbiome. And there's a lot more stuff that goes into gut health. But a lot of people are more than happy to consume one or more of these. Uh, And there are ways that you can do it. Like dark chocolate, you don't have to eat candy bars, Um, you can use like organic powdered dark chocolate and add it to coffee or to baked goods or thing else. Processed sugars and saturated fats, you know, those bad fats actually increase inflammation. And when we talk about processed sugars, we're really talking about processed carbohydrates, which means any processed food. Things where the bran has been stripped away, things where there's no fiber left, tends to increase our insulin, uh, our, our blood glucose, and contribute to inflammation. Saturated fats do the same thing. Unfortunately, our comfort foods, ironically, tend to be high in, guess what? Processed sugars and saturated fats. Initially, when we eat these things, you know, sugars or fats, a lot of times they're associated with pleasurable feelings, pleasurable sensations, and they temporarily increase serotonin and dopamine. But that increase is very short lived and it's followed by a longer period of systemic inflammation. PEA and I'm not going to try to pronounce the actual name of it, but PEA is an endogenous fatty acid uh, effective in reducing pain and inflammation. It has been found to be an analgesic and antidepressant because it increases dopamine, serotonin, and norepinephrine availability and prevents neurotoxicity and neurodegeneration and inhibits peripheral and central inflammation. How can you increase PEA? It sounds like a wonderful thing. The best way? Sleep, and a healthy diet. There are PEA supplements out there, but they can be toxic. They can be addictive. They can be dangerous. And I am not, a, I am not a fan. I can tell of them. PEA, interestingly, has a lot of similarities in action to. Um, CBD oil, or your because it also works on the um, endocannabinoid system, so that's that's kind of an interesting thing. PEA, since it increases serotonin and dopamine, it's also important to recognize, especially if people think they're going to go out and take supplements. One of the reasons it can be super dangerous is because, especially if they're already taking antidepressants, the antidepressant increases serotonin if PEA increases serotonin, they can actually get themselves into a place where they have developed serotonin syndrome, which is life-threatening. So I want you to know about PEA. I want you to know that healthy living can enhance it naturally. Your body can make it. Uh, You don't need to take the supplements and, you know, preferably you don't. But it is one of those factors that helps us understand why good nutrition is important to healthy mood, as well as pain reduction. Musculoskeletal and visual. I didn't know how to group this. Ergonomics. We've talked about this a bunch before. Your bed, the way you sleep. If you're sleeping when you're trying to get to sleep, if you can't get comfortable, you're probably not sleeping well. It's important to look at the ergonomics. You can go online and search for, uh, ergonomics bed or ergonomics sleep. There's lots of different uh, websites out there. The Sleep Foundation is a great place to go. But basically, it's important to make sure that your spine is in alignment. If you're sleeping on your side, then you need a pillow that's at least as deep, but not deeper than your shoulder your ear, you know, so you want a pillow that's actually got a little bit of loft. If you're sleeping on your back, you don't want your head pushed too far forward. So it's important to pay attention to that, but it's also important to pay attention to your hips, which is why having a pillow, and they even have specially made pillows to go between your knees. So if you're sleeping on your side, you don't have your hips all in a cattywamp position. Desks. There's tons of stuff out there about desks, desk ergonomics. When you're sitting at your desk, you're supposed to have both feet on your floor, not sitting crisscross applesauce like I always do. Um, when you're sitting at your desk, if you have a hard time maintaining appropriate posture because you're just a wiggle worm, uh, you can get those big, um, exercise balls and you can use those as, I get one that I got one that was super big. I think it's like 70 centimeters in diameter or something. So my my legs are at a nice degree angle when I sit on that and I don't have to have any sort of stabilization, but that does force me to sit up more. And I obviously certainly can't sit crisscross applesauce on a ball. Relaxation spaces. Wherever that is, if it's your living room, you want to make sure that the ergonomics are good. How many times have you fallen asleep on the couch and awakened and had a kink in your neck or three dogs on top of you and a kink in your neck? You know, that's not real good for musculoskeletal pain. We want to make sure that relaxation spaces are also relatively ergonomically sound. Uh, If you've got a bad back. Uh, My husband has a bad low back, so it's really important for him to have good lumbar support even in his easy chair. And mobile devices, and I don't have mine handy. Oh my gosh, what what is the world coming to? Too often when people use mobile devices, they they have their head looking down you know, obviously you don't want to be hanging your head all the time. That puts a lot of stress on the back muscles of your neck, contribute to headaches and migraine, you know, all kinds of other stuff. So it's important for people, you know, ideally to have their mobile device where they can look forward. So what does that mean? Cause we're not going to walk around most of us with our, with our iPhone, you know, right here in front of our eyes. like this. I'm not disciplined enough to do that. <laughs> well, number one, don't walk and look at your mobile device at the same time but there are a lot of different um, lap desks that you can get that actually raise your tablet so you're so you're not looking down so you're looking forward you do also want to focus you know ideally every 20 minutes but at least once an hour away so if you're focusing on your computer screen for let's say an hour and your little timer goes off and says hey you need to move it's been an hour Well, in addition to getting up and moving, it's important to focus on things that are at a distance because your eye muscles actually do need to relax and, you know, whatever as well. So that can help, uh, reduce eye strain, headaches. Light levels can be problematic too, as far as contributing to headaches and eye strain. And even some TMJ, some people when they're straining also clench their teeth, um, Blue light can be especially problematic, even during the day, because it is so harsh on your eyes. You may look at getting a filter for your computer screen, for your television screen, and for your mobile device that is a blue blocker. Um, Color contrast can also be an issue. My husband, again, I like to have black text on a white background. That's just how I like to have it. But the white background is actually pretty um, strong. Uh, for your eyes and for your body to take in, he prefers to have white text on a black background. He uses the dark theme most of the time because that's easier on his eyes. Whatever works for you, and there are all, you can do blue and yellow. There's all different permutations. But if you do a lot of reading, it's important to pay attention to that and flickering, flickering of lights on your. Overhead ceiling that in people who have seizure disorder can actually trigger a seizure, but it also contributes to headaches and, you know, miscellaneous complaints in people even without seizure. So make sure that your bulbs don't flicker. Stretching. It's important throughout the day to stretch your neck. That means, you know, put your chin to your chest, you know, stretch out the back of your neck a little bit, put your ear to your shoulder, your ear to your shoulder, you know, make sure that you're not keeping your shoulders all the way up to your ears. That's not good either. Roll your shoulders back. Um, You want to stretch your upper and lower back. A lot of times when we're working on a computer, we round our back so we're already stretching it. Well, so what do you need to do? The opposite. You need to stretch your chest out and that will help keep those muscles from getting overly fatigued and causing pain. Your lower back um, is the same way. You need to We call it the cat stretch, whatever you want to call it. You need to arch your back and kind of round it down. You can also do crunches, whatever makes you happy, um, in order to get your lower back to release. Tight hamstrings is one of the main causes of sway back and lower back pain. Stretching your hamstrings is super important. Obviously, make sure you get a doctor's clearance and, you know, um, have to put those disclaimers in there. But... Gentle stretching to loosen up those hamstrings uh, helps a lot of people who have chronic low back pain. Aromatherapy is actually, you know, medically, there there are studies, there are peer-reviewed double-blind studies out there that have shown that aromatherapy with essential oils actually does help reduce pain. Now you need to use essential oils. Fragrance oils are not the same thing. They smell lovely. They can help you feel like you're in a better mood, but they're not going to do much for pain. There is something about the chemical constituents of the different essential oils that enter into your nose and are and attached to the different receptors that actually do have a um, effect in reducing pain perception. When people inhale or are exposed to certain essential oils, they found that they can experience decreased levels of cortisol, and that can be tested, you know, with a blood test. So decreased levels of circulating cortisol, which is our stress hormone. They tend to have a lower heart rate, less pain, less inflammatory cytokines, again, in their blood, and reduced symptoms of anxiety and depression. So SCORE. But what oils do you, there are, you know, a myriad of essential oils out there and people don't have to apply them to themselves in order to get the benefits. All they have to do is take a whiff. That's where the benefit is inhaling it and getting getting it into your nasal passages. So you don't have to apply it. And it's actually much safer not to. Certain oils for pain, bergamot, cinnamon, geranium, ginger, lavender, and lemongrass come up as in the top thing there. Now, I love bergamot and lavender. Cinnamon and ginger are, are spicy. They tend to be more of a warming. I cannot stand the smell of lemongrass, personally. <laughs> Some people love it. Uh, what I do with essential oils, I use it a lot with my foster animals, um, is I let them sniff the oils. And the ones that appropriate the ones that they need I trust that their their brain tells them what they need they will sniff and the ones that they don't need they smell and they're just like and they tend to turn away from it so that's yeah it's always interesting especially with the equines when we're trying to test that out but with people They can smell these different essential oils, go to a health food store. A lot of times they will sell essential oils at health food stores. You want to get the ones that are medical grade. You want to make sure that you're getting, you know, the actual uh, chemical compounds that are necessary, but you can go there. They have little testers, and you can smell them. And if you smell it and you're like, oh, that's awful, then obviously that's not going to be for you. Um, But a lot of times you will find one that in the list that works. You can also go online and search for aromatherapy oils for pain and get other suggestions. But these were the ones that came up most often and that came up in the uh, peer reviewed articles, which again are hyperlinked. Cognitive behavioral therapy with the um, identified patient and the family needs to focus on reducing psychosocial stressors, including interpersonal distress, you know, relationship issues financial stress and environmental stressor. For example, clutter, noise, whatever. We need to focus on reducing health anxiety in the patient as well as their family. The family may be catastrophizing what's going on. So we need to increase both of their health literacy to reduce health anxiety and provide them tools to cope with flare-ups. And we need to address that catastrophic thinking style. Why do we need to involve the family? Well, Family's reactions can increase or decrease stress. You know, if the family is supportive, great. If the family is frustrated, if they're anxious themselves, it may actually increase our our patient's distress. The identified patient's presentation also impacts this reaction. So if the identified patient is irritable, angry, grumpy, impatient, then that's probably going to have a negative effect on the family, which is going to make it harder for them to respond in a way that we want them to so de- mood issues can be stressful and contribute to caregiver burnout and resentment reduced mobility on the p- and on the part of the identified patient can lead to physical and time demands um, from the family because they're having to pick up some of the things that the identified patient used to do like cleaning or walking the dog or cooking if the person with pain needs caretaking or assistance. Maybe they can't actually bathe themselves anymore. They can't wash their hair. Uh, It may require hiring of a caretaker or lost time and productivity from work or their own personal time. They may feel like their entire world revolves around caretaking for this person, which can lead into resentment. You need to help the family address any of those issues. And loss of employment insurance and the cost of medication and treatment uh, can both impact the whole family's socioeconomic status. We need to make sure we're hooking them up with resources to prevent them from experiencing significant um, socioeconomic stress. We want to help people develop coping skills, including distress tolerance. And another one of my acronyms, I use CALMS. Comparisons. When they're having a bad day, have them compare themselves to how they're doing today, how they're coping with it, compare their pain today with maybe the worst pain they've ever had. We want to help them see how they're doing better. You know, it's not perfect, but they're doing better. Activities that they enjoy doing so they're not focused on their pain. Lovingness. Encouraging people to be compassionate with themselves instead of, you know, Telling themselves what they should be doing or beating themselves up because they can't do that. Being compassionate. Meditation. Using different types of guided imagery, especially to deal with pain can be helpful. And sensations. And this can be massage. It can be heat, cold. uh, It can be smells. Whatever it is that helps the person feel calmer. Encourage living in the and. We talked about that earlier. Accepting. Okay, I've got this chronic pain and I have all these other things that are going well today. So just because I have chronic pain doesn't mean my life is over and everything sucks. Um, Living in the and means embracing the challenge with the good. Encouraging positive focus every day, at least 20 minutes. Focusing for 20 minutes only on the things that went right that day, only on the good things. Developing psychological flexibility. Which means becoming mindful of how you feel right now and asking yourself, okay, I feel how I feel, guilty, angry, painful, whatever. What can I do to the next moment? Physically, emotionally, cognitively, what is it that I can do to improve the next? Encourage people to focus on what they can do and what they do have rather than what they've lost and what they can't do. Address catastrophizing by exploring possible causes of what's going on not necessarily that their disease or their condition is getting exponentially worse, and the probability that the worst case scenario is actually gonna happen. Help them deal with the availability heuristic, which means focusing only on what is most recent in their mind and all or none thinking by keeping logs of their pain of and of their good days and comparing and seeing, you know, if their pain is reducing in intensity and or frequency and jumping to conclusions. You know, I feel bad. That means that, you know, I must be having a a flare up. I must be getting exponentially worse. Encourage them to get all of the facts. Help them develop health literacy so they understand what causes their pain, what makes their pain worse. And in whatever their diagnosis is, what the trajectory for that is. Encourage the development of communication skills assertiveness, and boundary. You know, just because one person in the family is, is in a bad mood doesn't mean everybody else has to be in a bad mood and encourage them to um, address any guilt associated with being in a good mood, even though, for example, the identified patient may be in a bad mood or may be hurting today. Also focus on reducing personalization and owning their own reaction. There is no one solution for chronic pain. Pharmacological interventions may be necessary, but for the majority of people, additional complementary interventions will also be necessary to improve functioning of the body, to increase the availability of serotonin, dopamine, endogenous opioids, yada, yada. Improve the functioning of the family to reduce distress and increase support and identify alternate tools to deal with pain or break through pain. Alrighty. I apologize for running a minute over, but you know, are there any questions? All right. I am glad that y'all enjoyed the presentation today. If you have any other questions, feel free to reach out. Um, you know, I love especially talking, uh, neuropsych, neurobiology. That's, you know, one of my things, um, And I look forward to seeing you on Tuesday when we are going to talk about preventing co-occurring disorders in the collegiate population. If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode.